My name is Aaron Johnson. If we've never met before, I'm the youth director here at Riverbend Community Church. I'm excited to have our youth in here with us. It's a great reminder of the life of the local church when we're all together. And if it were not for our intentionality in what we do on Wednesday nights, there would be no reason for us to leave this room and be apart from you. But we are intentional in what we do. And I'd like tonight to give you a little bit of a glimpse of, uh, of what youth ministry is like here at Riverbend Community Church. We aim to do so biblically. So we'll look into the Lord's Word tonight and get a little taste of, of why we do what we do in our pursuit and practice of youth ministry here at Riverbend. But let's pause and pray before we get into God's Word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the occasion where we get to come even the song that we just sang was one that was sung at my wedding. And it reminds me of a great wedding to come. When you come and return and take your bride to be with you in glory one day. And Lord, this is impossible if not for the ministry of your word. So help us to attend to your truth tonight. To dive in, to have our noses, our fingers in the text that we may come to know you and then worship you in response, Lord. Thank you for what you're doing here. Guide me as I preach. Guide me as I bring forth the meaning of your word, Lord. Let your spirit attend to this sermon. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, very good. Uh, I am the youth director here at, at Riverbend, and I believe I get to participate in one of the most exciting aspects of local church ministry and I'm not alone in this. I'm not alone when it comes to the enthusiasm of having a desire to reach the next generation for Jesus Christ. There are many youth leaders here tonight. I'm going to ask you to stand up if you're a youth leader because I want our church congregation to see you. Uh, these are faithful souls that serve alongside me. I don't do youth ministry alone. I have a strong team. Are you going to stand? They're not going to stand. Yeah, there they are. <laughs> Many of them are serving in other ways tonight as well. I'm not alone in this enthusiasm for next generation ministry, but even beyond that, I'm far from alone in the responsibility of ministering to the next generation. It involves the whole church. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses was speaking with the authority of God to a new generation, to Israel. And in this episode of Israel's history, Moses gives a contrast of the rebellion of the previous generation, the parents of a new generation. And he contrasts this rebellion with the faithfulness and constant grace of Yahweh, their God. He is the covenantal God who does not abandon his promises. Amen? In chapters 4 through 11 of Deuteronomy, Moses calls upon this new generation to be more faithful to God than their parents were. So let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall repeat them diligently to your sons and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the road, when you lie down and when you get up. You shall also tie them as a sign to your hand. And they shall be as frontlets on your forehead. You shall also write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I want us to consider three aspects of a rightful response to the Lord. To know him and living for the Lord through all generations. Firstly, we should recognize that God is deserving of life devotion. And we see this in verses 4 and 5. 
Hear, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The word here in this text is a common address seen in the book of Deuteronomy. It means to listen, but more than that, to give heed to something. Give attention. Hear, Israel, hear. And Israel is a very personal address. It's a direct address to God's chosen people, his chosen nation. They are a corporate identity. They have a belonging. And the attention for the individual within Israel cannot be separated from their corporate identity. They are a chosen people of God. For the hearer, when it is said, hear Israel, the hearer would say, that, that's me and that's us. Hear Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord, Yahweh. Yahweh's been making himself known to Israel for quite some time. This is now the fifth book of the Bible, the last book of the Torah. And there's much account of what God has been doing to make himself known to the people of Israel and to work amongst them and through them and to protect them and to guide them. He's made himself known. He has done things that they could not imagine that he might do on their behalf and to his glory. He's been, ma he's been making himself known throughout various generations up to this point. They've come to know him through personal experience, but especially by reputation. His, he has made his name great, and he calls upon Israel to do just that, to lift and exalt his name above all the nations. He is the faithful God. He is the covenant-making, promise-keeping God. He is the sovereign creator, and for Israel, he's our God. Isn't he everyone's God? Our God here reminds Israel and us of what he's been doing up to that particular point in history. Who, ha who he has been to them and what he has done for them. It should remind Israel and us as Bible students of the con constant evidence of God's faithfulness towards Israel despite their lack of faithfulness in return to their sovereign God. He has been their God. He's been intimate. He's drawn near to this people, a people that inherently have sinned against him. He's made special covenant with Israel, an exclusive relationship. And he's an incomparable God. 1 Samuel 2.2 says, There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. He's the great deliverer, the protector, the long-suffering one, the only God for the Israelites. He has specifically set his affections upon Israel. Despite their false worship, there are no true contenders for his worship. He is to be the object of their worship. He's to be the object of their loyalty and their obedience, their allegiance. His is the glory in which they should exalt his name before the nations. And they should give ear to his instruction. Hear, Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. The Lord is one. There's some debate here over the meaning of the word one here in this particular verse. The Lord is one. Maybe it's emphasizing the singularity of God, uh, that monotheistic versus polytheistic idea. We know of the pagan worship was filled with uh, the idea of a plurality of gods. I don't think that's what it is here, although that's true. God is one God. There's one God. Maybe it's some type of 
uh, allusion to a unity within God, an internal consistency perhaps. That, that should ring true to us. God is a triune God. We sang about the triune God in our worship tonight. He is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons in one. He is unified and internally consistent. That is true, but I don't think that's what this verse is pointing to. Maybe it's pointing to his uniqueness. He is one of a kind. There's none like him. That's certainly true. He alone is God. He is very unique in his character. He alone is holy. As good Bible students, I think we have to rely on the context here. We rely on the context to determine the meaning of the word one. This really is in response to the adulterous ways of Israel. They've been unfaithful to their God. He is Yahweh alone. Not only is he the only God for Israel, he alone is Yahweh. They're called to narrow their focus, to narrow their worship. Israel, know Yahweh and worship him. Aim small, miss small. Lean in to the worship of your God. He alone is Lord. So this is in contrast to all the other gods of all the other nations, which they have often given themselves to. The gods of the nations that seemingly contend for the heart of Israel, for their attention. They've been in the habit of entertaining the worship of false gods for whatever earthly gain they represent. Psalm 115 says that whoever worships false gods becomes like them. What is the value of a false god? He's worthless. Those who worship them become like them. Worthless. Every man is created in the image of God in order to reflect his glory. And as a chosen nation, they're to reflect the glory of God. And they've forfeited this divine purpose by seeking after other gods. Seeking satisfaction in what they may have to offer. But there's no true contender. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God, Moses says. So what is Israel's proper response to their covenant-keeping, faithful God? It should be a heart of gratitude. It should be a heart of love and affection for Yahweh. In Malachi 1, we've been studying the book of Malachi and BFG with high school over the last couple months. In Malachi chapter 1, Yahweh reminds Israel of his unwavering love for this chosen nation who has been faithless toward him. And in their hardness of heart, in chapter 1 of Malachi, they respond to God, how have you loved us? Wow. That, that reeks of audacity. The covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. This love is on the basis of covenant it is an attitude. It's an attitude of one party that seeks the other party to be well-pleased. Love is the essence of covenantal allegiance, of commitment. A promised allegiance or commitment is characterized by what? Devotion. Enthusiasm. We show our enthusiasm in our devotion in a lot of ways, don't we? Five guys versus in and out. We get passionate. What's in and out, you might say? <laughs> Burger joints, right? But you know what I'm thinking of. Sports teams. Oh, man. I'm embarrassed to say that as Ohio State took over in the fourth quarter the other day, my enthusiasm and passion for my team came out. Rarely am I seated on the couch when my team does something great. I've been known to break dance in front of the TV screen. You're just like me. I know you. I've watched you too. 
It wouldn't take long for me to say one or two things in this room and we got hoots and hollers. Am I right? Gator Nation around? See? It's chaos. <laughs> O-H. My wife was faithful. Good. She's from Arkansas. Consider the ways that we show our devotion and our enthusiasm for something. Israel has the opportunity to love God, the God who has never failed them. I'm a Browns fan. I'm a Browns fan. You know what it's like to be a Cleveland sports fan? It's full of death. It's lonely. It is sometimes. We do have one of the greatest fan clubs in all the world. But it's it's rough. We go through all the agonies and pains that come with the losses in Cleveland sports. But God has never failed Israel. They should be enthusiastic in their devotion and love for him. This is the essence of grateful covenantal allegiance to their God. And you shall love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God. While the address is to all of Israel, you can't help but feel and recognize that the command resonates with the individual here, right? I can't make you love God and you cannot make me love God. But when I love God and you love God, we are a people that loves God. The heart of a people is made up of the hearts of individuals. And here the Lord, through Moses, challenges the hearts, the heart of every individual, of every Israelite. They are called and commanded to love Yahweh. And it's Yahweh specifically. It's that narrow and specific worship. Centralized focus, centralized allegiance, centralized devotion, centralized worship. Yahweh alone is God and he is your Lord. Such a people that love God in this way could say, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. This this is a mandate given to a corporate identity. It's to all of Israel It's got an individual impact, and that individual impact has a corporate manifestation amongst them. The investment should be both to the individual and to the entire body in mind. We together are to worship Yahweh. How might my worship of Christ impact your worship? Or how might your worship of Christ impact mine? When you worship something, you talk about it, you share it, you relate together in it. With all the hearts of the people of Israel coming together and worship, they are a people that loves Yahweh and they're called to this love. But how, how are they to love Yahweh? With all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength. So how is the individual impacted here? Well, it penetrates, the command itself penetrates to the individual. I think we need to be careful with this phrase, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We've got to be careful not to nitpick and dissect this into three different compartments, perhaps, or compartmentalize these truths as you know, various different aspects of man that we need to figure out how man is to exude this love in all these ways. Rather, I think it promotes an inventory of the whole self. It's the whole being. It evokes a love that searches after its fullest extent and in intensity. It is far-reaching. With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. There's, there's similar language in Psalm 139. David, in talking about the omnipresence of God, starts to name specific locations, right? Part of it says this, if, if I were to be able to take the wings of the dawn and race across the horizon, or if I were to, to be plunged 
into the remotest part of the sea and dwell there. Even there your hand will lead me. He's everywhere. Israel's love for God is to know no bounds. With all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all that you are, you're to love Yahweh. Each individual is to love Yahweh, to love him with the all of you, your entire being. This commitment is not meant to be exercised in modes, but in the absolute of self. Your thoughts, your will, your intentions, your desires, your energies, your capacities, all unto him. Israel, Yahweh, is a faithful God, and he is your God. Give yourself to him. Revere him. Fear him. Serve him. Keep his commands. Walk according to his character that is so beautiful. Cling to him. Trust in him. Listen to him. If we're carefully, if we look closely, the main issue here is whether or not Israel truly knows Yahweh to be their Lord. If they truly know him for who he is, they will love him. And if they love him, they will obey him. Think about what Christ has done for you and me. When we come to know Christ for who he is, look at Philippians chapter 2 and the humbling of Jesus. He humbled himself willfully, coming to please the Lord through perfect obedience under the law. He gave himself up to the, the fallen context that was brought about by our sin. And even though he was not deserving of it, he bore the wrath of God on the cross for you and me. Are you thankful for your Savior? Do you see that the God of the Bible is one true God? Have you, have you come to trust in Christ's provision of righteousness for you? In his substitutionary death on the cross for your salvation? And if you know him as, as Savior, do you also look to him and trust in him as Lord? Is he the Lord of your life? Have you given your all to him? Do you worship him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and all of your strength? Resting and trusting in what he's provided for. Well, not only should Israel fully devote themselves to him, and not only should we fully devote ourselves to Christ, but we should prioritize attention to God's word for ourselves and also for the next generation. In verse, verses 6 and 7 we read, These words which I am commanding you today, this is Moses speaking, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall repeat them diligently to your sons and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. In verse 6, Moses has just commanded previously all of Israel to love the Lord their God with their entire being, right? But how should they do this? How should they intend to love God with the all of them? Well, the Lord is a giving God, and he provides the answer. These words, he says, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. These words is not limited to this particular text. It's not limited to just the Ten Commandments, but it's, it's about the entire law of God given to Israel. It's representative of God's word and instruction and counsel to God's people. We've got to pause and recognize the great significance happening right here within this text. Just how is it that Israel is going to worship their God, the one and only Yahweh, who's deserving of their allegiance, their faithfulness, their worship? How are they going to do this? It's through these words. 
these words, a gift of God. And this is significant because of the complete historical narrative going all the way back to Genesis. Because in Genesis 3, we see that man forfeited the instruction and counsel of the word of God. In Genesis 3, we find God's word questioned and disputed, twisted and misrepresented, rejected and dishonored. Satan was deceiving and tempting man to sin against God. And man willingly did so. This opened the door for man to justify his or or her sin before God and to seek autonomy from God. At the fall, man walked out from under the lordship of God and the counsel of his word, rejecting the authority of God and his instruction. But there's contrast. In contrast with the authority given by God to Moses, Israel is commanded to cling to God's word. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. I think so often when we think of God's word, we think that we need to be submitting to it, right? And that is true. We must submit and surrender to the authority of the word of God But how often do we simply think of it as a gift, a treasured gift? I remember the night the Lord saved me, the means in which he brought me to salvation by faith was to pick the Bible up off the shelf. And I remember having to blow the dust off of it. I had not attended to his word, but it was through his word that he made me right before him through faith in Jesus Christ. In the context of Israel's rejection of God, Israel is given the way back into a right relationship and restoration through God's word. The ultimate concentration is not on works and obedience of the law, but on faith in God and his word. And what God is showing them through their lack of obedience is that their dilemma is resolved in Christ alone. The story's not done here. The Lord is faithfully pointing to his plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. But it hinges on the fact that we would adhere to his word. It is the gospel of Christ that brings us to him. Are you grateful for the word of the Lord that points us not only to our failings, but to the resolution that's brought through Jesus Christ our Lord? If the Lord has brought you to faith in Jesus, then he has done so through his word. Amen? This involves trust and faith. If you have the certain hope of being transformed into the likeness of Christ, then it will be accomplished by what? By his word. Are you grateful for the gift of the word of God? Do you own a copy of it? If you don't, I will give you one. So often I encourage our students not to rely on a, a Bible app on a cell phone. That's, all, that's okay to have that. But I want my students to have their noses and their fingers in the text because that's where life is found. We must become intimately related with our copy of the word of God. Cling to it. Come to know it. And by knowing it, we come to know him and his salvation. If we know him... For salvation's sake through his word, we will also be sanctified by it and made like Christ. Give ear to his word. Lean in. God's people are called to have an intimate relationship with their Lord through his counsel. It's his chosen means. Notice that this is a command. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And a command necessitates a response. Will Israel draw near to the Lord's instruction or will they live their remaining days in rejection of it? It shall be on their heart. God's law is to be perpetually kept in mind. 
accompanying and informing man's will. This, is, this should cause us to be cautious about what informs our hearts and minds. What begs for our allegiance. Movies, books, pithy memes, social media trends, advertisements, worldly fears, the list goes on and on. It begs for our allegiance. This does not mean that we stubbornly ignore good things from God in self-righteousness, but instead that we practice biblical analysis and biblical discernment in all areas of life and everything that comes our way. We are under the counsel of the Lord's instruction. That's where life is found. To go out from under that is where we find destruction. God's word must inform the heart, helping us make decisions. That's not always an easy way, but it is the right way. The easy way was found in Genesis 3. To go according to delight and desire. But the heart is deceitful above all things, the Bible tells us. Moses' call through the command of God's word is not a call to blind or merely external obedience to Yahweh. It's not cold obedience. Take out the trash. Okay. The lordship of God through his word should be cherished. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 7 through 9 paints a, a pretty picture in this area. Verse 7, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Only be careful of, of yourself, for yourself, and watch over your soul dil diligently. Why? So that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and grandsons. This brings us to verse 7. And you shall repeat them diligently to your sons and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. There's a, a specific manifestation or product of this sold-out devotion and worship and allegiance and faithfulness to the Lord. And that is, I believe, next-generation ministry. A product of the heart sold out for God and worship is next-generation ministry. If Israel's well-being is dependent upon obedience to God's law, then they must share it with each successive generation. But this is interesting for you and me. It's actually in Israel's disobedience to God that the necessity for commitment towards the next generation is made vivid for us. In Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, we see Israel's initial recommitment to the Lord after Mo Moses' instruction and under Joshua's leadership. Verse 14 says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and do away with the gods which your fathers served beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the Euphrates River, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Together, Deuteronomy 6 and Joshua 24 overlap in their focus of a devoted worship in response to the word of the Lord, Yahweh. And this generation was faithful to God. This generation served the Lord with great longevity. But it isn't long when we look at Judges chapter 2, verses 7 through 10, 
that we find reason to have pause. In combination, Deuteronomy 26, Joshua 24, and Judges 2, it packages to serve as a warning for you and me. Judges 2, verses 7 through 10. I'm just going to read 7 and 10. Listen carefully. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. In all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and another generation rose up after them who did not know the Lord, nor even the work which he had done for Israel. Let's be real. We cannot control the heart of another. We cannot control the hearts of each successive generation. I can't control the hearts of the children in my own home. But I can and I must be faithful to tell them about their God. To tell them of the works of their Lord throughout the course of history as evidenced in Scripture of the pointings to the fact that we fall short of the glory of God and we're in desperate need for a Savior. A Savior that's given to us by the hand of a long-suffering God that loves us so much that He sent His one and only Son not only to live for us, but to die for us and to have victory over sin and death. How can I keep that to myself? Faithful worship is accompanied by exalting Christ by telling of his great works, that each and every soul and each and every generation would cling to that word and counsel by faith. In Christ alone do you have salvation. And by the counsel of the word of God can you be made like him. In obedience by faith, free from the bondage of sin and death, to walk in obedience that is pleasing to God. And that is where your joy is. Amen, students? We cannot control the hearts of the next generation, but we can surely be faithful to tell them of all that the Lord has done. If eternal life is dependent upon the saving and sanctifying power of Scripture, then we must faithfully share it with the next generation. Deuteronomy 6 promotes a strong work ethic here. Be diligent when it comes to sharing God's word. Repeat them, it says, sharing, reading, memorizing. Speak of them, teach it, bring forth meaning, find application. It's to be on the regular. When you sit on your in your house, when you walk on the road, etc., you're to speak of the word of God. You're to teach it, you're to show it, you're to display it, you're to find application. It's to be repeated. It's to be memorized. It's to be held close dear to the heart. It must be known. Everything that the Lord has done for us must be declared, often shared. And this is a command for a people that penetrates into each and every individual home. And the homes in Israel are not like the homes that we experience today. It's not the nuclear family that we used to see in every 1950s sitcom, right? The household in Israel was basically a community in and of itself. But it penetrates down to the very parent, to the grandparent, to the body of Israel to train up the next generation. I'm not alone in my enthusiasm for reaching the next generation for Christ, but I'm also not alone in the responsibility. Amen? It belongs to all of us. And this penetrates into each and every home. Parents, single or together, we're called to minister the word of Christ to our children. It's to be done in all of life's settings. Every occasion, looking for teachable connections. This is an area in which I've come to know the Lord and that he is faithful. If I will give myself over to the opportunities to teach my children about God on every occasion, I will not be seeking opportunities as if they don't come. He's faithful to provide them. 
In all the occasions of life, there's opportunity to speak the truth. And truth is everywhere. Use it. Point to it. Sometimes that means in dealing with our own sin and being transparent before our children. Being called to repentance. Let them see your faith as displayed through repentance in Christ. Does it sound tiresome to be diligent in teaching about God? Think of all the other things that we freely talk about without growing weary. Not only should we fully devote ourselves to the Lord and prioritize the word of God in our lives and for the next generation, but thirdly, we should agree with God that we must follow his lead. We see this in verses 8 and 9. You shall also tie them, these words, you shall also tie them as a sign to your hand, and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead. You shall also write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Go back to verses 6 and 7 for a moment. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart and you shall repeat them diligently to your sons and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the road, when you lie down and when you get up. I'm a dad, so I'm going to speak to the fathers for a moment, okay? Do you see the, prom the process here in these two verses? These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. They shall be on your heart. And then you shall repeat them diligently to your sons. Notice the process. Dads, don't shy away from the lordship of God in your own life. Let it be evidenced before your children. Don't shy away from the lordship that you receive from the counsel of his word. This involves surrendering to God's word. And with it, expecting great heart change in your own life. It's okay to be transparent before your children or even in view of the entire body of the church. It means growth for you and testimony to the changing power of the word for others, including your children. To see him and to know him. And if they know him, Lord willing, they'll come to love him. And if they love him, they'll obey him. But verses 8 and 9 bring the focus back to self. Notice how the word of God is given to govern lives. You shall also tie them as a sign to your hand. The hand is representative of activity and practice. What you participate in and how you participate should be led by application of the word of God. Is it right? Am I being gentle? Am I being kind? Is it truthful? Is it sinful? Is it destructive? Be careful. We cannot allow desire and delight to get out ahead of us. The word must lead us. God's word serves as a safeguard when temptation comes our way. Amen? Jesus showed us that. What you give yourself to do is evidence of your true intentions and desires. You shall also tie them as a sign to your hand, and they shall be as frontlets to your forehead. God's word must lead. It's a submission to the lordship of the authority of God through his word. The word administered to the heart, to the mind, to the will, to the intentions, to the attitudes of the inner man. It brings us into conformity with the will of God, that which pleases him. To love what he loves and hate what he hates. These, these words have been taken very literally by some. Maybe you've heard of phylacteries, right? Literally something tied to your hand or, or something attached to your forehead. We might scoff at that, right? But I think, I think in that literal response, we ought to also examine our own hearts. 
how weighty, we, how weighty do we consider this principle to be? That the word of God should lead us. That it is through the counsel of the word of God that we surrender to the lordship of Christ. Do you read your Bible? Do you regularly give yourself over to careful study of the word of God? Is it worth it? Do you invest in memorizing scripture? Do you speak of it with others that you may sharpen others and in turn grow in your own understanding? Do you evaluate your habits, your decisions? Is it under the lordship of the word of God? In verse 9 it says, You shall also write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Well, verse 8 couples the heart and the mind, frontlets, with the actions and the practices, hands, of man. It couples the heart and mind with the actions and practices of man. And in verse 9, we see another coupling. It's how man submits to the Lord of Yahweh in his home and in the community. How man submits to the lordship of God in his home and in the community. God's word must govern what we do in secret at home, how we conduct our relationships at home, how we raise our children, etc. But God's word must also govern how we conduct ourselves in relationship with others in the community, in the workplace, at school, and with the body of God's people. Does the word of God govern your life? In order for that to be the case, we must give ourselves to it. Do you read your Bible? Do you study it faithfully? And in all these things, we have the greatest example. And who is that? It's Jesus Christ. He willfully submitted himself to the law of God. He walked in a perfect obedience to the glory of God the Father and for the benefit of sinful man. When under temptation by Satan, Jesus affirmed the necessity of God's word for living in devotion to God the Father. We see this in Matthew 4, 4 and verse 10. In verse 4, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Verse 10, then Jesus said to him, go away, Satan, for it is written, you shall not worship the Lord your God, or you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And Christ secures for sinful man an understanding of God and his word. Aren't you grateful? Christ secures for you and me, sinful man, an understanding of his word that we may know him that we may be set free from the bondage of sin and death, that we, that we may walk by obedience and faith and cling and trust to him, and trust in him, right? Verse 4, John 1, 4 says, In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of mankind. That we may know his counsel, that we may know his instruction, that we may give the governing our lives over to the word of God. We buck up against that. We're really good at suppressing the truth and we work hard at it. We justify our sin all the time. We think that the Lord is holding out on us and keeping us from what is truly satisfying. So we seek satisfaction in other things. In order to do that, we've got to suppress the truth in order to pursue, pursue something else, right? Why do we work so hard to do it? It's because of the inherent problem with the inner man. We are sinful and our bent is towards sin. We are sinners by nature. But Christ is doing a work that we may know and understand. And through understanding, he brings us life. And through that life, we can be well-pleasing to God. And with that life comes fruit. For you and me. Why do we do youth ministry the way we do it? We're really purposeful about the use of the word of God and what we do. Very intentional. I'm praying that we are faithful as God would have us be faithful. 
in administering to our young people with the word of God. Let me read for you some of the things that we aim to do in youth ministry here at Riverbend Community Church. We want to be biblical. We recognize that we're all in this together as a church. We're not only called unto Christ, but unto a fellowship of believers. And this is by Christ's design. I think it's very much a Philippians 3 pursuit. Following example after one another as we follow Christ. We recognize the significance of the home in discipling the next generation. We come right alongside that calling in the home and walk in the responsibility of the body to serve the next generation in the word of God. We are committed to the exposition of scripture. We tend to teach through entire books of the Bible. Even topical lessons usually follow an exposition of a main text. Why? Because this protects that it is God's word that we are teaching and not our own word. Youth leaders receive training in basic hermeneutics and through practice they grow in their ability to teach the word. Students receive training toward their own Bible study and sometimes this happens through our own lessons. We want to teach them. It's, we don't hide tricks of the trade when it comes to teaching God's word. We want to know how we want them to know how to study it and discover truth for themselves. Students receive training toward their own Bible study, observation of the text, interpretation, and application with the potential for opportunity in handling the Word of God themselves and their relationships with one another and their relationships and outreach toward the community and sometimes in an opportunity to teach before others, which we're excited to provide under careful guidance. We are a family-equipping church. This is part of next generation ministry. What happens for in youth ministry here at, local, uh, at our local church does not happen in one particular room, understand? We are a family-equipping ministry. Parents are encouraged to receive training through uh, discipleship training program, DTP, through soul care, through college and seminary classes, even through auditing these classes or simply through one-on-one -on -one discipleship. A lot of youth ministries will do whatever it takes to get students through the door, but they forfeit the one thing that makes it certain. They will provide all sorts of games and free pizza. Those things are fun. And they'll neglect the word of God as if they cannot trust in it to draw souls the book of John, Jesus says, if you'll but lift me up, I will draw souls to myself. We want to be faithful to that end. We're not ashamed of Scripture. We're not ashamed of Scripture as the primary means to gain the attention of students. Right, guys? We take every gathering as an opportunity to teach the truth. We advertise the teaching of the word, the opportunity to respond in worship, and the encouragement of continued discipleship as the centerpieces of BFG, of Wednesday nights and youth, and of all of our camps and retreats and all events that we do throughout the year. We provide training and scripture memory. We promote student-led worship that involves a humble response to the Lord. You got to see some of that tonight. We provide counseling to students and families with the intention that we all willingly submit to, profit from, and enjoy the work of the word on our hearts together. We do not baptize without understanding of the gospel and a response to the gospel that involves a life-changing impact and cherish the opportunity for public testimony to the power of the word of Christ. Amen? Church, hold us accountable in these things. Make sure that we are maintaining a biblical purpose in our youth ministry to the next generation. And guess what? Don't leave it just to us. It is a whole church work. It's important that we consider the all of Scripture that's afforded to us in this process. The command to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 6 was really with Scripture in part these words, but we have all of scripture when we minister to our youth. I, I want to give us a, a caution. I want you to hear me out carefully. 
Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, or the entire book, is of extreme value, infinite value. But it's meant to be seen within the context of the whole, okay? All of Scripture. If we too heavily base our family discipleship or youth ministry on Deuteronomy 6 alone, we may fall prey to assuming that intentionality and rigor under the law of God will keep our kids from sin. But man's sin problem, problem is already inherent within each one of us, right? The law is meant to point us to our need for the Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we're not careful, hear me out. If we're not careful, we, we may impress upon our children that as long as they do not do as others do, then, they'll sh then they shall maintain a personal sinlessness. But we're all sinners in need of a Savior. This leaning toward, toward legalism and simply adhering to the law of God will likely hinder our children from gospel reception. They need Jesus, just like I do, just like you do. Think about this. In Deuteronomy, after giving the law, Moses in chapters 27 through 30 places before Israel an ultimatum. There are no gray areas. Choose blessing through obedience or face devastation and exile. Life or death, blessing or curse, the fruits of righteousness or the destruction that accompanies evil. How can they choose life for their sake and for the sake of further generations? They can begin by loving God who has made himself known through the counsel of his word. But one day... Oh, sorry. After this, after encouraging them to know their Lord and to follow him, he admits that they're going to fail. They're going to fail. Why all this commandment to follow the word of the Lord and to obey him? Why all this if they're just going to fail? One day, Moses says, by authority of the word of God, one day they will return to the Lord through a circumcision of the heart, a heart change, a gift of God's doing. Think about this, coming off the, the end of the Torah, the, the book of Deuteronomy, these first five books of the Bible, there is much yet to be fulfilled that is promised of God. The seed promise in Genesis 3.15, we see the future, future fulfillment in the incarnation of Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. Jesus said this work, it is finished on our behalf. What is left undone or unanswered is the blessing through Abraham in Genesis 12. that is found in the lineage of Christ. He's provided to us. Or how about the future reconciliation between a holy God and sinful man? is fulfilled through the finished work of Christ on the cross? Or how about the transformation and restoration of his people? It will only be brought about through a continual work that's already be do being done right here before our eyes, wrought through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? So while all this is left unanswered for Israel, in contrast, we have the whole counsel of God at our disposal. We are desperate for his word. And through it, the Lord gives promise of making us new through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. This is a gospel in which the Apostle Paul was not ashamed, for in it is the power to save souls. It works in our sanctification too, making us more like Christ, loving what he loves and hating what he hates. This is a reflection of his glory. To have this without compromise ladies and gentlemen, will likely mean forfeiting some of the things that seem natural in our culture. Students, are you hearing me? To have this means that we'll likely need to forfeit some of the things that seem natural and normal within our culture. We can't serve two masters. We must know where our allegiance lies. I'm grateful for the Lord. I'm grateful for his son. I'm grateful for what he did for me on the cross. And I'm grateful for the counsel of his word. The fruits of God's promises in our lives and the lives of the next generation will involve putting the Lord's word 
and his will first. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the counsel of your word. Thank you that it renders our hearts unto, unto you to know you and to love you. And Lord, left with the responsibility of obedience to, you, to your word, we will fail. We already have. But your word is faithful to point us to this need. And through you, your word, you give us the promise of a savior. And through your word, we find that he has come. And he has finished a completed work. That through him and trust by faith in what he's done, you bring us into right relationship with you. And this is secured for eternity. And what a word it is. It is to be shared and not kept to ourselves, but to be shared faithfully to the next generation. Lord, thank you for these promises and your truth. What a gift. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.